So we're in this series over Christmas called Aspirations, and my, uh, my whole premise with this series is that this time of year brings out in us aspirations for things that we wish we could be like, things that all of us universally, the good in life that we wish we could be like. And today we're talking about, talking about hope, and, and the story that we're going to talk about today actually begins in a time when the world in that era where that person, where this couple lived was really dark and hopeless. It was a time in the faith journey of the Israelites when there was long unfulfilled promises. Prayers that had been prayed that were unanswered and obviously unanswered. And it was a time of great difficulty in life. And the story of these two rather obscure people actually teaches us a lesson and draws us to one of, I think, a universal aspiration that we all have. Don't we all admire those people who are um, maybe old and gray, who have lived just a really good life, maybe an ordinary life, maybe even a, a life that just has a lot of difficulty in it, and yet we find their faith to be alive and vibrant, and we see them realizing hope even after years, maybe even after decades of hoping for something and not seeing it, and then they see it. Don't we admire that kind of faith that perseveres through difficulty, through the ordinary, through time, to stay deep and vibrant and see something come to pass? And I think that's really the aspiration we're talking about today, this idea that we persevere and, and we don't give up, we don't become bitter, but we become people of deep faith, abiding faith in pursuing God. You know, we, the stories we admire from the Bible are stories like this. We admire Abraham and Sarah and, and, and staying faithful to God just in a fairly solitary life their whole life and seeing the promise of God and a child in old age. We, we love the story of Joseph, of him finding a hope and a dream being fulfilled through the jaws of prison and slavery. We, we admire even in history the George Washingtons of the world who, who came up against huge, great odds and, and, and made a difference in people's lives. And we, we admire even more the Abraham Lincoln types of the world who didn't start from privilege, didn't start with resources, started from nothing, and somehow they persevere through great difficulty and they realize a dream. We love the rags-to-riches stories we even love the cereal box stories. How many get the cereal, the cereal with the cereal box stories of those like youth and, and kids who just decide against all odds to start something and we see this 18, 19-year-old funding an orphanage in China or doing, you, get, you see those cereal boxes? Do you get that brand of cereal that has those stories on it? You see those stories? We love those types of things. You know, who have you admired in your life, who is stuck through that kind of odds or through decades and still has a beautiful, vibrant faith that realizes hope. The Christmas story introduces us to two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they grew up in a difficult time, in the time of King Herod the Great. He was, he was called a king, but he wasn't the Caesar. He, he was just a regional king in, in the Roman Empire. And he was called the Great because of all the great things he built. I mean, he was a, he was a massive builder and an, an inventor, an, an ingenious guy. And, and if you go to the Middle East today in Israel, half of the ruins and half of the even established architecture you'll see from back from the era of Jesus is actually built by Herod. 
He built the temple and expanded it. And he built the great Colosseum in, 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 uh, in Caesarea and in aqueducts. And, and he built a port where there was no port because he invented quick-dry cement and figured out how to build this massive port where it wasn't even possible geographically to normally have one. He was just this brilliant, great, driven egomaniac to build. And he was also this terribly evil person. He killed his wife. He killed his two sons because he was threatened by them. He killed so many political opponents so overtly that at one time there was this huge uprising in the area against him because of it. So he decided to be politically wise and instead of killing them outright and sending squads after to kill him, he just invited his enemies to his palace in Caesarea which had this amazing pool and they just kind of consistently drowned. And he just kind of said, well... It's not my fault if they can't swim. He's just this amazingly evil guy. And we see him even in the story of Christmas itself when the, when the wise men come following the star to find the king of the Jews, which was his title. He is so jealous that he sends his, his army to Bethlehem and slaughters every child under the age of two in an attempt to kill Jesus. He is this powerful, brilliant, conniving manipulative, evil person. And it's under this leadership that this simple priest and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth, lived. Now, he wasn't the the great priest who was at Jerusalem all the time. In fact, he lived in a small town in the hill country of Judea. Small enough that he would have been the kind of guy who he would have pastored the church of maybe 30 to 50, even possibly 100, but more likely 30 to 50. He had his own job and he did it by vocation, except for two weeks out of the year, he would go to Jerusalem and serve his rotation at the Jerusalem temple. And during that time, this simple man just wanting to live a peaceful, faith-filled life would have rubbed up against all the corruption and the tension and the fear of, of Herod killing people and, and the fact that Herod was trying to rebuild the, the, the temple and everybody knew he was just doing it to get favor with the Jews so he could make more money and it really wasn't a pure motive and there was all the politics and all the difficulty of facing that that he would have rubbed up against every year for two weeks. And he's an old man. He's probably somewhere between 50, maybe even in his 70s at this time in his life when the story takes place. And one of the things that he comes to realize that he doesn't know at the time of the story is that Zechariah is also living at the end of what's called in Bible theology the, 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 the era of 400 years of silence. God hadn't spoken to the people of Israel for 400 years. Can you imagine living for 400 years without God speaking to you? And yet it wasn't just the kind, of, the kind of hopeless praying when we all pray for something that we don't know if it's God's will and don't know if it's going to happen and we feel like it's just bouncing off this glass wall and coming back at us and it's just this kind of hopeless. It's not that kind of a silence. It's, it's more of a deafening silence. Have you ever been in this awestruck environment where everything went, everything was just amazing and then it goes silent like that? And it's just this deafening silence. That's, that's kind of like what it was for the Israelites at that point because the prophets had prophesied that Israel, because of its disobedience, would go into exile and they were very detailed about how that would happen and, and about how some of the exiles would come back to Jerusalem and how that would happen. And they were very detailed about that. And in those same prophecies, they still talked about this coming Messiah 
who would restore everything in Israel to order. And and they saw about two-thirds of those things happen. So it was more of this deafening silence after this great move of God that proved that the prophet's promises to them were true. They experienced it. It wasn't just thoughts. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just intangible hopes. It was their hope for a Messiah was based upon these huge acts of God in the past, their real experience. And the story goes like this in Luke 1. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, meaning they were both from the priestly clan. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, it says, and he was serving as priest before God, meaning in Jerusalem, he was chosen by Lot, which chosen by Lot was a a little bit akin to just throwing dice. Um, So he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now this is an amazing story for us. We're only going to be able to unpack part of it today. Uh, It's amazing for us historically, from its accuracy there, but it's also amazing for us today as this example of enduring faith. You see, Zechariah in his day was one of about 18,000 priests who were on service at the temple in Jerusalem on regular rotations. So think about Zechariah as old as he was. Coming twice a year, he had probably served in Jerusalem well over 500 days at the temple at this time while he was there. And there were four special duties each day that lots were cast for. The highest of the honors was to burn incense before God in the holy place. And you only got to do that once in your life if you ever got selected at all. So imagine Zechariah, over 500 days there. He's getting old, and every time the the lot's cast, it's nope, God hasn't chosen you. Nope, God hasn't chosen you. Nope, he chose somebody else. Nope, you're not good enough today either. And he just goes on with that. And if we imagine what his life was like, it was really fairly ordinary. He just kind of did the same thing over and over, every day, every year, for 50 to 70 years. On top of that, you have Elizabeth being barren. And in the Jewish culture, uh, children were seen as a blessing from the Lord as they are for us today as well. But to not have children, to be barren, it was always suspect that you were actually earning the disfavor of God. So can you imagine this humble priest and his wife in this small town and everybody going around and asking these questions, what did they do wrong? They must have sinned. What did they do wrong? Why are they not having kids? God hasn't blessed them. Why is he showing disfavor to them? He's our priest and God hasn't shown him favor. Why should we follow him? Can you imagine the feelings and the messages, the gossip that would have gone around? For many of us, living that ordinary type of a life in the midst of those messages would leave us bitter, would leave us questioning God. God, why don't you choose me? God, why don't you bless me? God, why don't you give me the longing of my heart? Why don't you answer my prayer that I pray day after day after day? My husband even goes to Jerusalem and prays that at the temple twice a year for every day he's there. Why don't you give that to me? And we'd be left 
questioning God or questioning ourselves. What's wrong with us? Where's God in all this? And yet what we admire, what we aspire to be is the people who press through those messages in faith to see hope realized. And that's what this story invites us to. The text says both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. They were faithful in the ordinary day-to-day of life. In spite of all these messages, in spite of all the opportunities for them to feel like God wasn't good, they still trusted and believed that he was and kept on. And can you imagine what it must have felt like for Zechariah to go from ordinary not a lot of hope, just feeling like life's just going to go on. I'm going to be passed over again. God's not blessing us and he hasn't blessed us and now we're well past childbearing age and we're just not going to have this. Can you imagine what it would have been like even just that day in Jerusalem to have that lot come up and, 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 and choose him to do what was considered the highest honor any priest could do during their entire service? And And in many ways, it's a very, very special thing, but in many ways, it was also just a very, very simple thing. I mean, basically, he got all dressed up in cute little robes and uh, walked in as people all stepped out of the the, um, temple and they all knelt down on the marble, marble things. And can you imagine that? I mean, you know, sometimes you think if we go a little long here, it's uncomfortable, but can you imagine kneeling? And it goes a little long when you're kneeling there on marble. And and all he did was go into the temple and and he just walked in and he, I couldn't find, you know, I figured a big fire here would not be good. So this is incense. And he would bring incense in to burn at the Lord's altar. And uh, he'd just throw it on the altar and he'd say a prayer. Maybe read a few scriptures as part of a prayer over the people and asking God for blessing over the people. And, and then he would walk out and he'd bless the people and that was the high honor. I mean, in some ways it's just this great thing you get to do, but in some ways it's just kind of the same. It's just simple stuff we do as part of our faith, isn't it, in a way? The interesting thing is the Bible, and even in Jewish culture, but the Bible reinforces it in the last book of the Bible called Revelation. It says that before God there is this altar of incense and there's this bowl with coals in and there's incense in it and, and it describes that bowl as being a place where that's filled with all the prayers of God's people. And it says the smell is before him and the, and, the vis- and, and the smoke wafting up in the air before him is always in his sight and it brings him great joy to see that for us. Something very simple and yet It's beautiful to think about. It's basically God's aromatherapy. When I pray, when I pray, my prayers go up to God. And he loves it. He loves it when I pray. So Zechariah is going about his business. The crowds are praying and, and waiting patiently with their knees on the marble. And he tosses the incense on the coals and he bows and he prays and probably closes his eyes and, and, and it says this, and when the time for burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. This is kind of understatement. I mean, imagine him just praying there. Opens his eyes and he knows nobody else can be in there legally and nobody else is supposed to be in there and it's a, probably a thing about this size and there's a really big guy standing right here after you open your eyes. I mean, 
Can you just imagine? And it says, the, it says when Zechariah saw this, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. Well, I would be too, wouldn't you? I mean, you close your eyes and you open up and there's somebody there. And, and then he knows that the second thought is, well, what if this is God himself? And he knows from his theological training that if it's God himself, he's about to die. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And, and just imagine, he's still in the state of shock, just this hyper-awareness, and his mind is probably running going, what prayer? You mean the prayer that I just prayed on behalf of the people, or, or, or was it my prayer that I wouldn't die right now? Was it the prayer that was basically a one-word prayer when I said, ah, when he showed up? I mean, what was the prayer? What's the prayer? And he goes on and says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John, and he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or ferment a drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That prayer? You mean my prayer for a son? I stopped praying that long ago. I'm sure that's going through this mind. I gave up on that prayer a long time ago. And the question for us today is, what have you stopped praying about? Or what, have, what are you praying about less often because of discouragement? And you might say, well, God hasn't answered yet. But God always answers. He answers yes, he answers no, he answers later, and sometimes he answers yes, but it's going to be different than you think. He just has different answers. And you see, Zechariah went through his life having these longings in his heart for children and not being fulfilled and thinking it was past time and surrendering them over and, and pushing them away and giving them back to God. And he just kept praying. He kept loving, he kept serving, he kept worshiping God, he kept adoring his wife. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, today, the answer is yes. And the beautiful thing is that the angel says, and you'll name him John, which means God is gracious. And it certainly was gracious because this announcement brought great joy to, to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And isn't it fun to see God answer a prayer? Isn't it fun to see God bring long-awaited hope that you thought was gone to fruition in somebody's life? Isn't it fun to see God's presence? That's, that's one of the reasons why I'm asking you to email me some of the ways God's interacting with you and the, the stories of how he answers your prayers and how he speaks to you and gives you hope and how he gives you promises and how you're understanding that because I don't care how good our band can be, I don't care how good of a sermon we can do, there's no greater form of praise on earth than for somebody to stand up like, like the couple, like the two couples that we had today and the two services who stood up and, and gave a testimony of God being real in their life. There's no greater form of praise than that. And some of us, when we, when we read these texts and we hear these stories, we, some of you might be thinking, well, do you believe in angels? And I go, well, yes, because angels are in the Bible. And we believe that the Bible is true. And there's angels that are sent to be ministering spirits to us, and sometimes they show up to us, and sometimes they just do, they do stuff on our behalf that we can't see. And there's also fallen angels who follow their leader, Satan. 
And that's the reason why people will say, well, isn't all spiritual stuff good? And no, it's not. Not all spiritual encounter is good. It's the reason 1 John says we need to test the spirits. But the theme of the story today is so amazing because God is this amazing God who just not only orchestrates human history, but he, but he orchestrates things down to the finest T of even the name of Zechariah alludes to the theme, the primary theme today. Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. God remembers you and I. God remembers the promises he's given you. He remembers the promises he's given us. He remembers our prayers that we prayed today, yesterday, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and they're just like that, standing right before him. He's watching it waft up in the air and he's smelling the sweet aroma and it brings him pleasure and he's so happy with our prayers. He remembers them. He even remembers prayers from previous generations that are yet to be fulfilled and answered. And this story is a story about God remembering and orchestrating the perfect timing for him to answer. The perfect time in history to answer. You know, we so often think that when we pray prayers that, God, that our answers are, that the answers are just individual things. We oftentimes pray prayers for us or, or for a friend and we think the answer is just for us or the friend, but, but the lesson here is that sometimes that God wants our individual answers to be blessings to others. Sometimes the answer of God to us about later or different is because he's working in us to get us ready to handle the answer. And sometimes it's because he's working in other people because he wants the answer of our prayer to bless others. And until they're ready, it's not the time. Walter Wangerin says it this way. He says, God is the God of history, weaving the human interactions of the past and the future to draw as many as would come to him creating a present pregnant with significance and meaning. And he's doing the same thing with your prayers today. They're not just about you, but it goes back even to what God called to our father of our faith, Abraham. The very first words to Abraham were, I will bless you so that what? So that you will be a blessing to the nations. His answers to prayer are not just individual answers. There's always purpose there's always mission in the way he wants to bring about those answers and share them with people so other people come to faith as well. What are the prayers you struggle to pray out of discouragement and you wait for a clear answer? You don't seem to find it. You know, we want to be able to go through those places of discouragement and hope that we find when things aren't answered even though unanswered prayers are fallacy. We want to we go through unfulfilled promises and stay faithful and true. That's what we all dream of being. And yet in our discouragement and our difficulties along the way, we often give up. We often, we often just set things aside and say, I just, I just can't anymore. I just can't believe for that anymore. I can't pray for that anymore. I can't do that. And we get discouraged and think we've fallen short, partially because we idealize people of great faith instead of seeing them for really who they are. Yes, there's there's strength in Zechariah and Elizabeth in living faithful to God in the ordinary day-to-day of life when the routine just seems like it's going over and over again and and things aren't getting answered. But, 
But yet the beauty of the story goes on for us and the rest of God's interaction with Zechariah and Elizabeth shows us a picture of how powerful God is, how this God who has expectations of us is also gracious and good in working with us even in our weakness. So imagine Zechariah stunned, overwhelmed by the appearing of the angel. And just try to imagine his feelings, his feelings of awe, his feelings of shock at both the experience and the content of what's being talked about. This dream, this long-forgotten, painful dream that we've shoved all the feelings over here and tried to compartmentalize them because it's too painful to deal with. Could it now be, become, could it now be happening? And can you, can you remember a time in your life maybe when, when the surreal event happened in your life that, that your mind, you just, it was a shock and your mind was absorbing the content and the emotion and the, and the information at the speed of sound and yet, and yet it was still so overwhelming because the experience felt like it was at the speed of light. This is, this is the experience Zechariah is having. And Zechariah asked the angel, he said, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Gabriel is one of only a couple of angels mentioned in the Bible. He's mentioned in the book of Daniel. And he says, I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. You know, how hard must have been for, for Zechariah to, to even think about those hopes and longings to come back up, for God to touch them. How hard it is to persevere in faith when it feels like it's never going to happen. Can you imagine the guilt he, he must have been feeling as he, as he was on his way home, walking home, and, and he's going, how can, I, how can I tell Elizabeth this? Now, some people say he could have written it down, but the reality is she most likely didn't know how to read. And so here's this guy saying, I've just had the best thing happen to me in my life. On top of that, this hope and dream God says to me, and I didn't believe it. So I screwed everything up because I was deaf and deaf when I came, or not, not, not deaf, mute. When I came out of the temple, I couldn't even finish this high honor that I had to bless the people. And now I'm on my way, my way home, and I don't know how I'm going to be able to sign to my wife what, what, what was said and, and how I'm going to even, I can't believe. And can you imagine the guilt that he felt? And yet the lesson for us today is not that great faith means never letting go of longings or, or, or feeling guilty in our doubt, but the great faith is trusting God's goodness even when no seems to be the answer or different is the reality in his answer to us. The interesting thing about this passage is that God doesn't back down in his doubt. He doesn't run the other way and say, oh, you didn't believe, so I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to take it somewhere else. Wendy and I were talking about this this last week, and she just brought this up, and I, th- I thought it was beautiful. She said the beauty and the power of God in this for her, and I think in this text, is that even though Zechariah wasn't able to speak because he didn't believe, and even though it was so frustrating to not be able to communicate, although Elizabeth at times probably thought it was really nice to win all the arguments for nine months. Honey, can I do this? Oh, you didn't answer, yes. The beauty is that even in the consequence of, of, that God gave him, 
there was confirmation of the promise God had given him. God's kindness is seen even in the consequence that helped Zechariah to believe. This story is loaded with truth. We could talk about how God gives promises and how he leads to fulfillment. We could talk more about how he thinks about us and his kindness towards us. We could talk about how we deal with the words that God speaks to us and promises and how we hold those and what we do with them. We could talk about how God confirms his promises to us and is so faithful to do that to us. We could even talk about from this passage the theology of human life and about, and about when conception and when, hum, human, when somebody becomes a human because of the beauty of it, of it talking about the Holy Spirit filling the baby even in the womb and, and the interaction between Mary and Elizabeth. And we could talk more about how God is so gracious to pay attention to our prayers and and answer and come and remove our reproach and remove our shame from us. He doesn't want us to walk with that. He wants us to be free of the reproach and the shame. But today we're going to center just primarily on hope. The hope that we get because we can trust that God remembers. God remembers our prayers Even prayers prayed 2,000 years ago, he remembers. God remembers our prayers and is delighted with them and he is always at work orchestrating all of life around us, everybody around us, even people who who don't know him have no interest in following him. He is orchestrating all of our lives in a way that he will fulfill the promises to us. We could talk about hope of how generous and kind he is to us when we struggle and we doubt and how his intent is just to remind us and and gently lead us to belief to fulfill our our dreams we could talk about hope about god working in the ordinary like we did last week more he's just there all the time working we don't always notice it but i want you to ponder the questions we've asked a couple times I want you to personalize them right now, and I'm going to give you just a couple moments to do that. What are the promises you believe God spoke to you that you've given up on or you're just discouraged about? What have you stopped praying for or you pray for less often because of discouragement? What are the prayers you have prayed that seem unanswered? Would you just allow me, if you have to close your eyes, you can, or, or you can just look at this and just remember how those prayers that you think you've prayed and forgotten about are still before God and be encouraged. What are those specific prayers for you? Picture them as incense before God. Picture him smiling at those forgotten prayers. Maybe those areas are discouragement or they're lost dreams. Maybe, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's prayers for your marriage that are yet unanswered. Maybe, maybe it's prayers to be, be married that are yet unanswered. Maybe, maybe it's prayers for children not yet given that you've asked God for. Or maybe they're a prayer for the well-being of a child or the well-being of a relative or a friend. Or maybe it's a dream that you felt like God said, I want to do this in your life and and you've given up on that. I want you to just give it now to God one more time. Worship team, if you could come. Would you take a moment and just give it to God?
God remembers. He delights in your prayers. He's smiling because he knows he's got good planned for you. And he loves the fact that you participate with him in that good by giving your hopes and dreams and your longings to him. Today, uh, we're going to have a little bit of a complicated close compared to normal. We're going to dedicate a child to the Lord. And... um, But before I do that, if God's touched one of those longings in your heart, touched one of those places of hope, touched one of those areas of prayer that you just have a hard time praying for because you just have a hard time hoping, one of those prayers you want to give up, I want to encourage you when we dismiss in a moment to come and have somebody else pray for you as well. And I'll be even more specific about that because I think we felt like in prayer for this Sunday that there were a few things the Lord specifically wanted us to pray for. So in a moment we'll do that. But, but Dustin, if you and Rachel and your family, all, any family members and friends that would like to join you up here could come. That would be great. All of you are welcome to come up. So, or not, either way. Either way, come on over here. Everyone say hi to Ethan Robert Pargin. Isn't he cute? Isn't he wonderful? If there's any, uh, um, I don't know if we have any elders here or any of the prayer people would love to come up and help me pray, that w- I would sure appreciate it. Or staff, can you come, come up and help with this? Um, one of the things that I think is so beautiful about this passage today is that uh, Gabriel refers to a, a prophecy in Malachi about John the Baptist, but I think it speaks to us something about children and about dedicating children to the Lord even. Going back to verse 17, and it says, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to take the hearts, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He wants to change our culture, change our lives, change our families, change our nation, by turning the hearts of the fathers and the parents to the children to help them to learn the wisdom of righteousness and the blessing of righteousness. And in this lesson, the the one truth in the scripture, the one truth that comes out that I want to reemphasize is the fact that it is not the church's primary responsibility to raise godly children. It is the parents' responsibility primarily. It's It's in your home, it's in your car as you drive along the road. It's, it's when you're feeding them and they spit up all over you. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's your child's bedside and the breakfast table. And it's when they're in the back seat and they're throwing toys and whining and crying and, and you're on a long trip. And, it, and it, happens in those, it happens in those moments that are planned when you take out the Bible and you read to them Bible stories. And it happens in those unplanned moments when they, when they disobey. And, and you get to be an example of Christ's love to them by disciplining them but showing them the grace of God and teaching them to not only receive grace, but to give grace to others. And the passing on of the faith is not done in one hour a week. It, it, it's done every day. And while it's clear that uh, parents are primarily responsible for raising children, the Bible also speaks in many different places to our responsibility as a body, a congregation of faith, as a church, not as a church building. We, the people, are the church, whether this building is here or not. 
Matthew 19, 14, Jesus says, let the, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And we kind of go ooh and ah about how Jesus talks about the children, but we have to remember that this was in a large public gathering in the middle of him preaching, in the middle of adults asking important questions. Jesus stops the whole thing and says, children are more important right now. And especially for us as a church community, being in this community where we're at, where it's chock full of children, we cannot be faithful to God's call for us as a people unless we become excellent to say that we're going to pray for children. We're going to pray for Ethan today. And we're going to pray for all the children. And we're going, to, we're going to do everything we can to provide the best resources to reach children and disciple children and teach them to hear God's voice and know him. And we're going to do it in our children's programs. And, and we're going to even do it in our small groups. You know, so often I hear from people in the small group arena, you know, we, child care is just a difficult issue. And they keep saying, church, why don't you provide child care? Well, you know what? I don't want to. Because the reality for the healthy raising of Ethan is that Ethan needs to rub shoulders with other parents and other families as well. So I want you to solve the issue of childcare in your small group and children are not a burden there. They're not something we just try to dispose of to put along the side. They are something that are vitally important to our small group experience and our growth because they need more than just mom and dad. They need other adults in their life who as well model godliness and prayer model kindness and and model repentance when they screw up before them. Um, I want to commission you guys in a second here. And, and, And Dustin and Rachel, will you commit to trust God's promises made to you and your children in his word and pass those promises along to Ethan? Will you commit to discipline Ethan and teach him the priorities of honesty before God and others while receiving the grace of God and giving that same grace to others? Will you commit to pray for Ethan and, and, and teach him to pray, to know the voice of God for himself? Will you commit to partner with this church and seek their help and accountability and support and lead your children to do the same? If so, respond by saying, with God's help, we will. With God's help, we will. Cool. And Quest, every one of you calls Quest home. Uh, pay attention and listen to this. Will you commit to pray for Ethan that he will grow up and love Jesus and trust him? Will you commit to teach Ethan the goodness and kindness and freedom and hope and purpose that comes through following the leadership of Jesus through both your words and your example? Will you commit to giving of your time and volunteering both in the formal ministries and in the natural relationships of the church to give your talents and your money to ensure our children have the best resources and opportunities to experience God and grow in God and bring other children to God for Ethan's sake and for our community's sake. If so, will you answer? We will. Um, We're going to pray for Ethan in just a second here, but the way we're going to do it, um, because we have other prayer needs as well, is I'd like the other people here who are willing to pray for people to come forward and, uh, and uh, we're going to dismiss, and then I'm going to pray. So you can st- we, I would encourage you to stay around and pray as long as you want or enjoy the worship song. But if you need to leave, we're going to dismiss when I begin to pray for Ethan here in a minute. But uh, I also want to be more specific. Wendy, uh, Wendy especially and I are both praying, and we felt like God wanted to uh, pray for people who were struggling to have children today.
If you are in that boat and would like for somebody to pray for you, we'd love to pray for you. Or if there's any other need that you have had that, that you feel like is a, is a hope, an area that God uh, maybe wants to reignite and touch again and ask you to pray about again that you've long forgotten or discourage, been discouraged with, then I want to invite you after we dismiss to come down and, and somebody will be here to pray for you even if we have to wait a few minutes and move around. Okay, would you do that? So as we dismiss, God bless you, Quest. Have a wonderful day. I would encourage anybody who wants to come down and pray for Ethan to come now as we dismiss.